We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Tom Palumbo. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. It's good to be back live. Live. Super cool to be live here in Crookston. So we want to give a big shout out and and a moment of appreciation to everyone who has taken the time out of their busy lives to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. It's super important to that. And we really appreciate the feedback and support that you guys have given us. And, And please, we really love to have those reviews. So Don, what are people saying about Midwest murder? I would love to, but I need to borrow your computer. Well, you can you can borrow. It's right here. I would love That's, to tell you. I would you love go. to tell you. Take a look. My old eyes. I, I'm going to spell that, actually. M-A- it's like Ma- Mogwai 1969, Mogwai. Okay. fam. Or Mogwai. 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 Okay. That guy. Visceral. Entertaining, visceral, real people, no pretense. I highly recommend. Thank goodness the presenters take the subject matter seriously, but don't take themselves too seriously. Thank you. We appreciate that. That is part of what makes the delivery brilliant. It's heavy stuff. It's really, it really happened, and we can talk about it and not take on the weight. That is a gift to the listeners. Well done. Five Thank stars, you. too. That's, that's pretty Thank awesome you. to hear, because Don and I don't take ourselves too seriously at Never. all. And, I don't, and somehow it blends in there okay when we're talking about mm-hmm. this super serious content matter. ND listens, does not agree. One star. One star, whoa. Reinforcing trauma. I already feel like those are... I, I'm like kind of puffing my chest a little bit here. This podcast glorifies criminals and re-victimizes people who've experienced trauma. Midwest murder is for those who support profiting off of someone's gross misfortune. May we never experience what the people in these episodes experience. And if we do, may we never be remembered with such indecency and dishonor. Andy listens. Thank you very much for your comment. However, clearly not a true crime fan. Andy, you know, Andy listens is not. Just don't don't listen. And that I take very personally because we we are not trying to re-victimize anybody. Uh, we take that part very very seriously. If anybody's heard me be on my victim soapbox, that's that's what it is. Is it's so that we don't forget these stories. And um, so I that bums me out. But yeah, there. Hey, that's there okay. are there it's are his opinion right. Or there are opinion. lessons to be to that's be learned right. here. Uh, so uh, other other shout outs today, of course, we are, this episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, the Domestic Violence Crisis Center in Minot, and we're proud to be sponsored by the DVCC in Minot. If you or someone you know anywhere is impacted, please encourage them to, to reach out. It's very important to understand that if you are experiencing violence or trauma in your life, in your home, that is not okay. That will, that's a cycle that will not end itself. Services at the DVCC and Minot are free and confidential. The website is courageforchange.org. You can also make a donation there. But if you need to seek out services, you can 
Go to courageforchange.org or call the crisis line 701-857-2200. And I really want to point out that for a lot of people experiencing domestic violence in their life, they're going to reach to a friend or family member first before they take that step to calling a professional. And there's only so much help that we can offer people who are experiencing that. So if you're not a trained professional, it does... I would encourage you, if you have a family member going through that, to, to let them know. It's okay. Call the DVCC in Minot or wherever you are and, and, and take those steps to living a safer, better life. Again, that's the DVCC in Minot. You can find their website at courageforchange.org. And the crisis line is 701-857-2200. Support them. They're great. Even if you're not in the area, they, can, um, they will still take donations. Today's story begins in 1997. So what was happening back in 97? The first book... These these guys weren't born. (laughs) That's okay. Well, we're going to tell them. We're going to let them know. The first book in the award-winning Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling is published. It was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone over in the United Kingdom, of course, released in the United States in 98 as Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The notorious B.I.G. shot and killed in a drive-by shooting. Princess Diana of Wales was killed in a car crash in Paris. Her funeral was watched by 1.5 billion people worldwide. I can still remember where I was. Like a, that's that was one of those things. Actually, I remember where I was where when I heard Biggie was shot too. But in the same place, huh? Not the same place. No. In 1997, some might remember the hail bop comet that was in the sky for an extended period of time and the tragic heaven's gate cult mass suicides in california it was the cult who was obsessed with the hail bop comet mm-hmm. mass suicides really scary spooky stuff mike tyson this one i remember where i was when this happened mike tyson bites evander holyfield's ear during a match and is suspended from boxing the storied evander holyfield ear bite yeah that was icky 1997 also in in hong kong hong kong kills every chicken within its territory 1.5 1.25 million chickens were killed in hong kong to stop the spread of a potentially deadly influenza strain known as the avian flu later it was bird flu that was thought to only infect birds until the first human cases were seen in 1997 on may 19th. And that did not go very well for them. Apparently. No, so no. And, 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 and here we are coming out of a pandemic. It's mm-hmm. just how these cycles kind of Tiger Woods at the age of 21 became the youngest ever golfer to win the Masters. He was wearing red. Scientists in Scotland reveal the first successful cloning of an adult mammal sheep named Dolly. The big films of the year included Titanic, Men in Black and The Fifth Element, which was highly underrated at the time. Fifth Element, great film. And popular and emerging artists of the year included the Backstreet Boys, P. Diddy, formerly known as Puff Daddy, Hanson, Jewel, Savage Garden, my favorite Daft Punk, and the Foo Fighters. Backstreet Boys, yeah. That was that was, that was your jam? I, I mean, I was... Our story, I supported them, yes. Our story to today takes place in the village of Palatine. Palatine is located about 35 miles northwest from the center of Chicago. It's out on the prairie. Palatine is a residential suburb in Cook County and considered part of the greater Chicagoland area. With its population at the time is about 65,000. 
Palatine, Illinois, is considered by many to be a pillar of fine examples to move to the area. When local governments aim to recruit people to the communities of the Chicagoland area, Palatine is one of their champion suburbs. You don't want the busy, jam-packed city life, but you still want to enjoy the fruits of a metropolitan city? Move to Palatine. Are you tired of the same old, same old and lack of options in your rural life? Move to Palatine. In the late 90s and the early 2000s, as a community, Palatine was in the process of initiating a number of improvements to attract more families and professionals. Palatine is a village, after all, but it wanted to consider itself far removed from the troubles of the big city, but have a lot of the cool offerings that cities might have. So these, were, these revitalization efforts eventually bring improvements to downtown and the community at large, adding a new passenger train station, parking garage, new condominiums, row homes, townhomes, excuse me, and commercial buildings. Palatine itself builds itself as a beautiful, family-friendly area full of parks with an emphasis on outdoor activity. Most of the residents are homeowners and families, row after row of neatly tucked away townhomes with narrow streets, modest yards, and single-stall garages fill the land around the parks. There's a ton of green space and a fair sense of knowing your neighbor. If not personally, you know their faces. There's no escaping the vague sense of familiarity with those living around you in the charming yet cramped neighborhoods of Palatine. It's like the typical burbs. It's total burbs. According to crimegrade.org, Palatine is safer than just about anywhere in Illinois. In fact, it's safer than 80% of the cities in the United States and is ranked in an overall safety as an A-. But if we're talking about Palatine here on Midwest murder, that probably means something went wrong in the quiet suburb of Illinois. It happens everywhere. Yeah. Gary Wagner and his family live in Palatine, Illinois at 1943 Jamestown Drive. Their townhome is situated just a few houses down from a dead end that leads to a water feature and a pond area with a fountain and a walking path. When Gary returned home from work on the afternoon of Friday, June 20th, 1997, he could immediately tell something was wrong. His home was quiet too quiet. I don't know exactly what Gary Wagner did when that sense of dread washed over him. Most of us, when we come home, call out to our families. Perhaps that's what he did, only to have silence answer the call. What I do know is nothing could have prepared Gary Wagner for the hellscape his home had become. When Gary Wagner walked into the basement of his townhome, he came face to face with a display of horror no parent should ever have to bear witness to. It was a scene of traumatic violence, bloodshed, and apparent struggle, the kind of living nightmare that gets seared into your mind, a brutal sight of trauma that returns unbidden to haunt your memories time and again for the rest of your life. The basement walls were coated in blood. Furniture was overturned. There was blood splatter on the ceiling, smeared and soaked into the furniture and pillows. It was a scene of shocking savagery, showcasing what the worst of humanity is capable of. There, in the middle of the basement floor, lying face down, was his 19-year-old daughter, Connie Wagner. 
Connie's hands were tied behind her back with a phone cord, and a cable wire was used to tie her ankles. Her lifeless body was a crimson mess of stab wounds and slash wounds. It appeared as though she was tortured with a knife. Connie Wagner was stabbed and slashed approximately 184 times. Wow. This was undoubtedly the worst day of Gary Wagner's life. Police were on scene by approximately 3.30 p.m., and the investigation was in full force. And the crime scene wasn't lacking in evidence. As detectives processed the Wagner home, they discovered a bloody footwear impression on a blanket. In Connie's upstairs bedroom, blood on her telephone. There was also blood in her brother's room on his phone, and some of his clothes were missing. A plastic bag was found in the upstairs bathroom. Fingerprints were recovered on the scene that did not did not belong to anyone in the Wagner family. The fingerprints were found on a newspaper that was smashed in between the couch cushions in the basement. They were also on the screen door, and there was a blood-stained piece of paper in an upstairs bedroom. Like, hang on one second. Like bloody fingerprints in the like on the newspaper and in between the couch cushions. Yes. Yep. So the the newspaper was like smashed into the couch cushions, and there was blood and fingerprints on that newspaper that was smashed in there. Gotcha. So assessing the scene, it it surely looked like there was a struggle, and that the violence had occurred throughout the basement, but there was no sign of forced entry. Gary Wagner and his son swore. The door was locked when they left home that morning. Connie Wagner's car, a maroon 1993 Toyota Camry, was also missing. There was bruising on Connie's hands and a hair found beneath her fingernail. It was possible she inflicted defensive wounds on her assailant. So this is the scene that this poor father came into. And... It was. I had to. I had to reflect on this. It's 180 stab wounds. That Just, is. That's anger. It's gotta it, be. You, you got to consider the time it would take for this murder to occur. This is not a quick occurrence, Mm-mm. right? This is. This. He's coming home in the afternoon. He left in the morning, and I mean, even even if it takes you one second per stab, that's three minutes of stabbing. Like three minutes of activity for a lot of people wears them down, but it probably right. did. It probably happened longer than that. Well, and like it's, I mean, and not only that, I mean, it's it's the amount of force that you have to that you have to use, right? I mean, that that person is on adrenaline and is going to be exhausted after that. Just from anecdotally, what we've seen in previous researching of violence like this on Midwest murder, it's usually personal when it's, it's, it's like if this. If it's, there's an anger, oftentimes it's personal. Not always. The two aren't mutually exclusive. And I mean, that would tell me if, if there was, if there was a hair found beneath her fingernail, I mean, that's going to be, you know, probably possible defense. Wounds, right. 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 But the interesting thing that sticks out to me is why blood on the phones? That's yeah. what I want to know. Police diligently canvassed the neighborhood, hoping for a witness and searching for Connie's vehicle. This crime was fresh. It must have occurred in the morning hours before lunchtime. Jamestown Drive, where the Wagner townhome is, wasn't very high traffic, especially while most people are at work or school. Nobody in the area had a whole lot to say or saw much of anything but for one neighbor who claims she witnessed a suspicious vehicle with an unfamiliar young Hispanic man cruising the streets on the morning of Connie's murder. As the investigation unfolded, 
It didn't take long for the focus to turn toward Connie's ex-boyfriend, 22-year-old Joe Stock. Connie and Joe were dating for several months after meeting at work. They were floating during smoke breaks and exchanged numbers and started dating after that. Investigators learned Connie Wagner broke up with Joe Stock the day before her murder. On Saturday, January 21st, the day after Connie's... June, June, yeah, sorry. And Saturday, June 21st, the day after Connie's body was discovered in her family's townhome, investigators called Joe Stock in for questioning. He came to the station willingly and spent the day being grilled by police. The most obvious of questions... Where were you on the morning of June 20th? Well, and of course they're going to start with the boyfriend. Right? I mean, it's, it makes sense. It's the first place you got to go. Yeah. Joe, it turns out, was with his mother and sister that morning. He boarded a train with them, heading for downtown, taking his mom and, and, and his sister on a ride there, and he rode for about 15 minutes before getting off the train as they progressed with their, on, their own errands, and he progressed with his. So not only did this place Joe Stock miles away from the scene, approximately 15 miles away from the scene of the crime when it happened, but a thorough examination of Joe's body did not show any signs of someone who was recently in a violent struggle. And Joe was inspected and photographed head to toe. His body bore no cuts, bruises, scrapes, or anything that could otherwise be associated with the grisly scene at the Wagner home. And something else I wanted to point out about 180 stab wounds that's been extremely consistent in every murder that we've covered were wounds to the hands of the assailant, the person driving and plunging that knife. It's just, you get bloody, you get slippery, you get sweaty, and your hand slides, and oftentimes your hand gets injured when you stab somebody that many times. I don't you're going to have a nick or a cut some, you know, at some point on your, on your, your it's hand. so, it's so likely to happen. So police also took the clothes Joe wore on the previous day, as well as his shoes. When investigators processed the items, no trace evidence was found on his clothing or any of his shoes. The bloody footprint could be broadly linked to a quote, gym shoe. And Joe did own pairs of gym shoes but none of them were forensically connected to the murder scene. So at this point, nothing matches forensically, right? No, this is the day after. It's the, not like this day, is days yeah. away. This the is day after, the, the next day. The clothing. He I came mean, willingly, made no big deal about it at all. So after spending the day... Hang on. Yeah, go ahead. Did, does, um, did they mention anything about like his demeanor? Was he upset that I his didn't girlfriend... Have, I, I didn't have anything. Okay. After spending the day being examined, questioned, and photographed, Joe Stock was free to go. He left the station in his socks with a check for 80 bucks to cover the cost of his shoes that were taken for evidence. While Joe was going through the interrogation process, the investigation was in motion throughout Palatine, and there was a small break in the case. Connie Wagner's Toyota Camry was found at the Baldwin Green Apartments, just about two blocks southeast of the murder. Police Commander John Koziel insisted, quote, that area was checked. The car had to have been deposited since. Police believe whoever murdered Connie Wagner used her Toyota Camry as a getaway vehicle. So now it would appear one of two things happened. A, police just totally missed that vehicle and overlooked the area that was two blocks from her house. Or B, B, that Toyota camera was either that Toyota Camry was either on the move 
or being hidden and then was subsequently planted intentionally at the Baldwin Green Apartments after police searched the area. And that happened again while Joe Stock is in custody being interrogated. A detailed forensic search of Connie's Toyota Camry was scheduled as officers continued interviewing friends, family, neighbors, and anyone known to be associated with Connie Wagner. The forensic search of the Camry ultimately turned up very little. There was no blood or murder weapon or really anything to indicate it was the escape vehicle of a bloody murderer. No trace evidence whatsoever. Investigators noted one of the tapes in her vehicle was of a very popular rap song at the time, 187. I couldn't confirm for sure, but I believe it's the very song also known as Deep Cover, and it's by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. Yeah, it's, it, and it's 187 on an undercover uh, cop. Absolutely. Yeah, the, so that's, that's the tape that was found in the vehicle. Now, Joe Stock's fingerprints were in the vehicle, but that wasn't really strange were, because couple. the two were until... Just the night before, they were a couple, and he drove her car from time to time. People knew that. People saw them driving the car. So evaluating everything they had, the, in, the investigation felt like it could draw at least two conclusions. One, there was no forced entry into the home, which subsequently increased the likelihood Connie Wagner knew her assailant. Well, that and she was stabbed 184 times. I mean, it's things are pointing to the fact that she knows or knew them somehow. Knew someone or someone wanted to send a message. It's 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 not random. And that was something right, even right. police at the time, there's always a panic that can set throughout these neighborhoods. Am I safe? Are my kids safe? For there's sure. a murder here. This is a quiet residential place considered safe. And then suddenly there's a violent murder in a home next to you. Everybody freaks out. But the police said, no, like nobody, nobody should feel like they are in danger from this. This was a targeted killing. I want to go back to something just because, uh, there was a, a tape just because there was a tape in her car about murder. Oh, you were fine when you were, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't, it's it, that shit always bothers stuff always bothers me. I'm sorry. I'm not sure if I should say that here. Sorry. Uh, that stuff always bothers no me. No swears in front of the children. <laughs> I could be your mom. I don't want to swear in front of you. Uh, like that stuff always bothers me, you know, where it's like people want oh, to blame the violence. Oh, on- they were listening to Marilyn Manson. They must be a murderer. I, it just drives me nuts. So what? I've got, I probably have that on my phone. I mean, like, I don't, does I don't, that, what does that mean? I don't it think mean we. Shit. Anything. Yeah. I stop. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. We can't look the the light. We can't hook like the the likelihood of somebody being a killer to the music no, they right. listen it's to. The, 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 it always just, drives me crazy. Yeah. Drives me nuts. Among the many people interviewed during the investigation was Michael Pope, a close friend of Connie Wagner. Police learned a lot about Connie through Michael's interview. According to Pope, he and Connie regularly used drugs drugs together, mostly marijuana and cocaine. Additionally. Michael Pope admitted that he and Connie often stole and pawned valuables such as jewelry from their friends and family in order to pay the debts they owed to their drug dealers. Furthermore, Pope admitted he and Connie purchased their drugs from people connected to the Latin Kings street gang, and they sometimes hung out with precarious individuals associated with violent gangs. And the Latin Kings street gang, you, you can Google them. They are a violent street gang. So this, this guy does confirm they spent time associating with these people, not just buying drugs from them, but hanging out with them. And clearly they're stealing stuff from friends and family to pay drug debts down. Last but not least, 
Michael Pope told investigators on the night prior to Connie Wagner's murder, he quietly listened in on a phone call between Joe Stock and Connie Wagner. Connie told Joe she was breaking up with him and moving with her family to Texas. According to Michael Pope, allegedly, Joe replied by telling Connie, I know what I'll do. You'll never make it to Texas. But how did he say it? Uh, you know, like it's it. This guy, he's shitty. Like, I don't like him. I can already Michael Pope. I don't like him. It, he's he's trying to blame a gang for one. I, that's my preliminary judgment. Sure, so. that's that's Don's hunch. Mm-hmm. Investigators now felt like they could put a motive on Joe Stock. He was angry that Connie broke up with him and upset by her plans to move to Texas. So he killed her. But without any physical evidence, there wasn't enough to bring any charges. Police kept digging. They secured phone and beeper records, which showed Joe Stock made several calls to and was paged by one Alfonso Nahera on the evening of June 19th, the very night prior to Connie's death. And just real quick, because there might be people listening somewhere that don't remember or have never seen or heard of a beeper or a pager. It was a little device that you held on your waist before the cell phone era and you called somebody and you put your phone number in, they saw the phone number and then you called it back. That's how we talked to each other before technology was awesome like it is today. And so that's, I had a pager, I was cool. I I know. I was totally cool. To a, well, if you had a pager, you were either a doctor or a drug dealer. Um, But I'm definitely a doctor. So, <laughs> but that was always a thing. And then like when you did paid your drug dealer, it was always like nine one one, you know, like, Hey, it's me. You can call me back. Like it was yeah, all that stuff. So given the phone records, please find out Joe stock and this Alfonso Nahara guy had exchanged some phone calls and uh, some pages. So compelled by the content of those interactions, the investigation turned toward Alfonso Nahara. Hey, hang on one second. I just want to clarify one mm-hmm. thing. I'm not saying that that's actually what people were. I'm just saying that well, yeah, that was always the, the that cliche. was always the, the the thing. Just like if you listen to rap music, you're or rock and roll, you're you know, you're rock and roll music, you're a devil worshiper or whatever. Thanks yeah. for dad explaining that. I for just us. I really did. I'm sorry. I I did. Dad explained Don. Dad joked Don. I'm better at the dad. She's jokes. gonna do Midwest math I, next. <laughs> no, I'll do some uh, dad jokes at the end. All her you, get, you guys are gonna get all her tricks. Yeah. So compelled by the content of the interactions from those phone calls and pages, the investigation turned toward Alfonso Nahara. Officers found him and interviewed him on June 22nd at his girlfriend's house less than a week after the murder. In this interaction, Nahara was guarded and didn't say much. He didn't want to get his friend in any trouble, but he did tell police in his conversations with Joe on the 19th that Joe told him he and Connie were fighting. He also said Joe called him on the morning of the murder from a train station and said he was coming over. So the morning of the murders, Joe calls Alfonso, says he's coming over. Now, Nahara evidently left before Joe came to his house. He had to go to work. But Nahara did say he believed Joe did come by. So police have more indication that Joe and Connie's relationship was over and the two argued heavily the night prior to Connie's murder. Still, this wasn't much more than hearsay. And Nahara wasn't actually witness to anything. The investigation was coming up short in physical evidence or witnesses connecting Joe Stock to the murder. The investigation also didn't have a timeline that could show Joe had traveled from one side of the town, 15 miles away, 
to the other, and again, no witnesses placing him anywhere near the crime scene, nor physical evidence. After nearly three months, no arrests had been made, and the investigation went quiet. Then, on September 4th, 1997, police decide to make a move on Alfonso Najera. In fact, it seemed as though officers were making frequent efforts to speak with Najera. Their intent? To press him for more information regarding his interactions with Joe Stock in the days surrounding Connie Wagner's death. Officers showed up unannounced at Shaw's Catering, Nahara's place of employment, and they confronted Alfonso Nahara in front of his employer, asking him to come with them. Nahara agreed somewhat reluctantly and joined them outside in a patrol car to answer questions. But when he got in the vehicle, officers told him they were taking him downtown for further questioning. Nahara kept telling them, quote, I don't know anything about anything. It was early afternoon when Alfonso Nahara was brought to the station. He was held there for hours as officers took turns hammering on him for more information. He was shown horrific morgue photos of Connie's mutilated body. He was pressured time and again for information relating to her death. Detectives were insistent Nahara knew more than he was telling them. Alfonso Nahara was kept inside the interrogation room for approximately 7 to 10 hours. Different officers would come in, ask him a battery of questions, press horrific photos into his face, and then leave him alone, unattended, sometimes for 20 or 30 minutes at a time. Eventually, Alfonso Nahara signed off on his Miranda rights, and over time, he began to make a confession. Nahara told officers Joe Stock's family came to his house on June 24th. It was Joe, along with his mother and sister. Joe's mom and Alfonso's mom were very close friends, like family, but not blood-related. They were there to have a family meeting about Connie's death and talk about the pressure the Stock family was receiving from police to implicate Joe Stock as the murderer. During the visit, while the family sat at the dining room table, Nahara and Joe went into Nahara's bedroom. According to uh, Alfonso, he had pictures from a lowrider car show that he wanted to show to Joe. But when the two were inside the bedroom, Joe revealed a dark secret. Allegedly, he told Alfonso Nahara, I killed that bitch, then proceeded to imitate stabbing motions of how he did it. According to Nahara's statement, Joe told Alfonso Nahara that he made copies of the keys to Connie's house and her vehicle. When he entered the Wagner home, Connie was asleep in the basement. Joe crept downstairs, quietly approached Connie as she slept on the couch, and plunged the knife into her while she was asleep. She woke up and begged him to stop, but he had a rap song going in his head, or he was singing it while he was stabbing her. She pleaded with Joe and said, Stop. I'll say it's some black guy. I won't say it's you. I'll say it's some black guy. Afterward, he washed up, cleaned up, changed, and left in Connie Wagner's Toyota Camry, leaving it at a nearby apartment complex. The interaction between them in the bedroom where Joe Stock made this alleged confession lasted about 20 minutes. That was the extent of what Nahara was told by Joe. Alfonso said he was too shocked to ask any questions, and he didn't have any other details about the murder aside from that. 
Joe Stock and his family left about 15 minutes later. At this point, Alfonso Nehera was not asked to give a written statement, nor was his confession recorded. What they did was tell him, quote, we're going to have somebody write this for you, and then you're going to read it, and then make any corrections, and then sign it. Now, Alfonso Nehera had to wait for the state's attorney to arrive because she had to write the statement for him, then witness Alfonso signing it. Since it was going to take an hour or two for the state's attorney to get there, police kindly took Alfonso and his parents out for dinner. It was 11.50 p.m. by the time everything was signed and sealed. I'm no defense attorney, but I feel like I can, I feel like I can like poke all kinds of holes in this already, like before this even starts. Again, it, I didn't. I'm, I'm not part of the legal team here. It certainly feels like a situation where uh, a, a potentially weak-willed or weak-minded person was brought into an interrogation room and absolutely hammered on, afraid. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't even say weak-minded. I think. Uh, I mean, it's, it's they're not pulling a, a Jedi mind trick on him. Like it's 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 all the interrogation tactics and scaring the it, shit out of him. It, yeah, I, I don't think it's. I don't think it has anything to do with weak-minded or anything. I, that's just. So what do you think, Don? Is it time to make an arrest on Joe Stock or how are you feeling after Nahara's statement? Too? Absolutely not. Okay. I, no, that's my, my opinion. Nothing matches well, forensically. Well, no arrest was made following this prepared signed statement from Alfonso Nahara. Eleven months later, on August 7th, 1998, detectives demanded something more from Nahara. Okay, I feel they, like they probably could have followed up a little sooner, maybe. Maybe. 11 months. <laughs> uh, these things take time. So they wanted to get a recorded confession of Joe Stock admitting to the murder. It was arranged for Alfonso Nahara to page Joe on his beeper and call back to the recorded line. Nahara agreed. The recorded phone conversation took place in the presence of detectives on August 10th, 1998. It lasted approximately 10 minutes. Alfonso Nehera never directly confronted Joe Stock about the confession, nor was he able to get Joe to talk about the confession he made to Nehera in the days following Connie's murder. The following excerpt from the recorded conversation is the closest that Nehera came to confronting Stock about the murder. Joe Stock. I mean, shit, you still believe me, don't you? Nehera. Yeah, I believe you, dude. I believe you, man. I just want to make sure that you didn't say something to anybody else and they come to court and then stock. That that what? Nahara. You didn't tell anybody else. You know what I'm saying? Because they come to court and then I look like, you know, Joe Stock. Tell anybody what? Nahara. Anything. I mean, did they subpoena anybody else? Joe maintained his innocence throughout the duration of the call. Suffice to say, it did not go the way investigators wanted it to. So they came up with a new plan. Detectives asked Alfonso Nehera to wear a hidden recording device, a wire, and attempt to elicit a confession from Joe Stock in person while police supervised the exchange. Alfonso Nehera refused. Nearly 18 months after the death of Connie Wagner, the investigation hit another wall. To this point, None of the physical evidence could be linked to Joe Stock. 
the case investigators were building rested solely on the word of Alfonso Nehera and Joe's alleged confession to him. Right. That's all you have. Like, you don't have anything else. What, what exactly was, was Nehera afraid of looking like? I mean, that, that exchange was weird to me. Uh, yeah. Know? And, it, it, and, and there's, know. yeah, there's, there's more to it, but that was kind of the big highlight. And again, it's kind of an interaction. He never said, so dude, Hey, remind me again of that time that you told me how you killed Connie or like, what right. did you do? Like he didn't ask him, how did you tie her up? How did you get away? Like you could have, I don't know. I feel like he could have done a lot of different things, but it was never expressly confronted. And Joe maintained his innocence throughout the whole call. So years pass, years. And by June of 2000. Now who, no, now who has been born? Right. Anybody? No. Oh, okay. Our arms are, few arms are still going up. Okay. All right. No arrests have been made in the murder of Connie Wagner. Joe Stock is still their prime suspect. In the winter of 2001, the decision was made by police and the state's attorney to press forward and charge Joe Stock with first degree murder. On February 22nd, 2001, Joe Stock was arrested and charged with the murder of Connie Wagner. He was still residing in Palatine, Illinois at the time. A bond of $1 million was set. The statement from Alfonso Nahara made him the star witness of the case, and he was considered, and it was considered the key piece of evidence against Joe Stock. Joe Stock pleaded not guilty. In March, Alfonso Nahara was brought before a grand jury to testify, which was, turns out, shortly after he completed boot camp for the Navy. When he testified, Nehera was asked questions by a prosecutor. In fact, the prosecutor asked him questions specifically from his statement. He was never asked to elaborate on anything. Essentially, in the grand jury, the prosecutor summarized a statement that was already a summarized statement written by another prosecutor. The grand jury upheld the murder charge. Joe Stock was officially heading to trial for the murder of Connie Wagner. I'm sorry, that is so not okay. First of all, he should have written his own statement. I mean, I know it wasn't a confession, uh, you know, but... I I wonder how often that happens. It probably happens more often than we think. But it's a summarized statement of a summarized statement. Yes. I don't know. It feels feels icky to me. And and why why the... There was such a delay to arrest him, and then all of a sudden it's like, ah, panic. We have to do this five years later, four years later. I, I, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, is this, is this one of those, just from, just from what I'm hearing so far, I mean, is this one of those cases that, that investigators just kind of put on blinders to, to, any, uh, to any other leads? You know, was there it anything? Does happen. It does is, happen. It does, absolutely, and, and certainly not, you know, it, implying that that investigators aren't doing their jobs i mean that's not what i'm saying at all but you know you get this you get these blinders and you you get this uh you zero in you zero in on somebody right nothing else fits well forensically nothing fits here so i don't it just it feels it feels icky yeah, you, you kind of got a, a weird statement that feels like it was given under duress. Uh, you got a guy that or, signed away yeah. his Miranda rights. And that that's what's kind of freaky to me. You could have said, well, look, I want a lawyer present before I give you this statement. I want to hear what a lawyer has to say to me. So those are the things. My lawyer says, always ask for a lawyer. Uh, so the months leading up to the trial were very dramatic. In fact, the trial didn't actually begin until the first week of September 2002. 
So he's arrested in February 01. This takes until September 2002. And the most hotly contested piece of evidence was the recorded phone conversation between Joe Stock and Alfonso Nahera. Nahera's repeated failures to challenge Stock's denials, according to Stock, undermine Nahera's claim that Stock confessed to him before the call. So this is, this is kind of a, a big piece of what prosecution and defense were arguing about because Joe Stock's team felt like the recorded confession benefited him. That recorded confession didn't benefit prosecution. So the prosecutors moved to have that piece of evidence taken out of the case. So this is the official legal breakdown of that. So knowing that Nahara would testify about the confession, Stock planned to use the recordings to impeach Nahara by showing that Nahara neither challenged Stock's exculpatory statements nor followed through on his promise to obtain confirmation of Stock's confession. Before trial, the prosecution filed a motion in limine to bar the introduction of the recorded conversation, saying it was hearsay. It argued that the out-of-court conversation was nothing but, quote, self-serving statements by an accused, and thus inadmissible hearsay. The Supreme Court case is uh, People versus Patterson. So Stock argued that he did not intend to use the statements to prove the truth of the matter asserted, his innocence, but to impeach Nahara, meaning to impeach him to undermine his word as a client. The, the defense's argument was that Nahara is a liar. We can show that he's a liar. He didn't do what you asked of him, and everything he's telling you is a lie that was pressured upon him by prosecutors and investigators during a 10-hour investigation. But ultimately, the trial court concluded that the recorded conversations were inadmissible hearsay. At the same time, the judge did say that if Nehera denied that he failed to confront Stock about the confession, then the defense could question Nehera about the substance of the call but they wouldn't be able to talk about anything that Joe said during the call. So it, it gets it gets crazy. Like I did so much reading. I feel like about I it. need a flowchart. It's dude. It's a, it's, it's a little yeah. it's a little absurd. Yeah. The trial court later clarified its ruling to saying permitting the introduction of Nahara's quote tell anybody else statement, but still prohibited the defense from introducing Stocks tell anybody what. So in short, the court decided that the defense could confront Nahara about his failure to raise the confession, but the state could not talk about Stock's response because they were, quote, exculpatory. So anyways, at trial, the defense cross-examined Nahara extensively about a range of issues, but they decided ultimately to stay away from the recorded conversation. So let's discuss, what does all that mean, real quick? So Stock wanted to do in a defense, it's what's called to impeach Nahara by omission using the recorded call. Impeach by omission, in a nutshell, is a tactic used to discredit or falsify witness credibility. It's a key technique for many defense cases. The judge 
which Tom. is one of those like I mean like Perry you, Mason stuff, right? But you always always uh, you know the your favorite jailhouse um, informant, the jailhouse you know, confession. You sure, you know you always you would bring in the fact that oh my gosh, this guy listens to rap Correct. music. You know Pri- what like, they call, and that's called prior bad acts right. are inadmissible. Yeah. So if you're a witness like in a murder trial, you can't. If you're trying to like undermine that witness, you can't bring up prior bad acts and sort of infect the jury, the jury's mind that this witness is some scummy person. So you can't take their word for whatever they're saying. So the, the judge, Thomas Fecarata, ruled Stock's comments in the recording were deemed hearsay and exculpatory. He said, quote, the judge, there's no other basis other than they are exculpatory statements of the defendant. An exculpatory statement is Evidence that tends to exonerate a defendant or helps establish their innocence. It's also one of my favorite words. Right. Along right up there with gubernatorial. So Nahara could be cross-examined on things he said, but not anything that Joe Stock said in the recording. Now, again, the prosecution was who made the motion to remove the recording as evidence. The defense wanted to use it because they felt it proved Nahara was lying. The defense argued hard that Nahara's statement about a confession from Joe Stock was a lie, and Nahara's inability to directly and openly confront Joe in the recording was proof that he was a liar. So that brought up an argument from the defense. The court was infringing on Joe Stock's rights to confront a witness. In trial, a few other key points were made by the de- by the defense. Aside from Joe Stock's fingerprints and Connie Wagner's Toyota Camry, there was zero physical evidence linking him to the crime. It was also undisputed that Connie Wagner spent time among dangerous people, including members of violent gangs and drug dealers who she was in debt to. Neighbors reported seeing a Hispanic man, not Joe Stock, driving slowly down her street before the murder. Police also could not account for how Joe Stock would have traveled to the Wagner home in the presented timeline, his alibi that he was with his mother and sister on the train. The state pathologist testified there was likely a very intense struggle. Joe's body, again, showed no signs of any defensive wounds inflicted on him or wounds he might have received in the effort of being an attacker. So the defense did its best also to show that Nehera wasn't consistent in his recollections and he was really erratic in his ability or lack thereof to remember a lot of things, a lot of details. Stock, Joe Stock's attorney made a big point to showcase his alleged confession to Nehera included no details of the murder scene, no details such as the cutting of phone cords, tying Connie's hands and feet, nothing about the clothes taken, nothing about the struggle, nothing about how he got to the house, nothing about the murder weapon. Finally, the defense's insinuation was that Nehera was bullied, threatened, and pressured into signing a statement prepared by a prosecutor. For the prosecution, well, their case rested almost entirely on Nehera's signed statement coupled with testimony from Connie Wagner's friend who claims to have heard Joe Stock tell her, quote, you'll never make it to Texas. And they said his motive for violently, brutally torturing Connie Wagner and, quote, carving her up was that he was angry over being rejected 
and could not handle the rejection. The trial lasted about one week. Once each side rested their case, the jury asked for additional clarification of, quote, beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, that's never a good sign. Judge Fekirata told them the phrase is left up to each juror to decide. The judge and the jurors, the judge had the jurors sequestered. So what that means is when you're sequestered as a juror, you're isolated from the public to prevent the jury from coming into contact with members or products of the media. Essentially, they don't want there to be any prejudice invading a juror's mind, so they sequester them away from the world. You're not allowed to see anything, be on your phone, nothing. So they were sequestered for more than 10 hours. An emotional jury returned their verdict on Friday, September 13th, 2002, the eight-man, four-woman four woman jury found Joseph Stock, now 27 years old, guilty of first-degree murder, accompanied by exceptionally brutal and heinous behavior indicative of wanton cruelty. As each juror was asked if he or she agreed with the verdict, several of them openly sobbed. During sentencing, Judge Fekirata described Joe Stock as, quote, a man without a soul. You tortured that girl. Stock said he felt sympathy for Connie's family, but maintained his innocence. Quote, as for expressing remorse for a crime I did not commit, I obviously cannot do that. I'm innocent, and nothing you can say or do will change that. He was sentenced to 90 years in prison. What did Connie's family uh, feel? Did they ever come out and say that he was? They felt like they got justice. Really? Yeah, I think I think they thought I think they thought that he did it. So I know they they were relieved to to have gotten to that point, and they felt like they got their justice there. Hmm. To this very day, Joe Stock maintains his innocence. He's tried time and again over the last several decades now to appeal the case. The effort thus far has been unsuccessful. Even the prominent wrongful conviction attorney, Kathleen Zellner, who some might recognize as the lawyer from Making a Murderer, took note of Joe's case and wrote a letter on Joe's behalf to the Conviction Integrity Unit in Illinois. She specifically highlighted the lack of physical evidence, Joe's alibi, Connie's connection to violent gang criminals, as well as the lack of follow-up on DNA and fingerprint evidence at the crime scene. Today, Joe Stock is still in the appeals process and attempting to get a new trial. His legal team is fighting for this, but progress is slow. You can learn more at freejoestock.com. I want to make something very clear. Midwest murder does not take a stance on Joe's innocence or guilt. However, Something we've made very clear throughout the history of this show is how uncomfortable we are with the idea of an innocent person behind bars. Several of our previous stories have featured people wrongfully convicted based on dubious testimony with little to no physical evidence. In some of these stories, it took decades for someone to achieve recognition of their innocence. And the thing that I really have a problem with is that quite simply people are liars. Forensic evidence is not. And in this case, there's what makes me just uncomfortable is a conviction 
almost wholly lacking in true, pure, forensic, physical evidence. You've got blood everywhere. You've got no defensive wounds. And I, I truly, I don't know if Joe Stock is innocent or guilty, but I'm bothered by a conviction with such an absence of physical evidence. Yeah, clearly we don't know what's what's what, but I mean that's a head scratcher for for sure. And and in no way, you know, by saying that that a victim had, you know, questionable history or questionable habits, I, that's not that's not victim shaming. That's not that that has nothing to do with that. It's not and it's not dragging that that poor girl through the mud by by any means. I mean, she she's a victim and and that the person who did this to her should be held accountable, but the right person, you know, and, and so again, we don't know if he's guilty or innocent, but I feel like there's, there are some things that need to be, you know, followed up on for sure. Like that's, it's crazy that he hasn't gotten further in the appeals process. He, he pressed really hard in the appeals that his right to confront a witness was undermined by the judge's decision to omit the recorded conversation. But it kind of comes back to that exculpatory statement thing, which is a really weird mm-hmm. circle. Yeah, and for sure. And it should still send out red flags that you have DNA evidence and why aren't why can't we link this DNA? Kathleen Zellner, when she wrote the letter, she specifically questioned whether or not the fingerprints that were found in various locations were matched against one another. Were those ran against one another? Were they ran potentially against gang members, against violent people in the area? And, and, and I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like it, but for a case to get her attention, it, it certainly, there's, there's question marks there. Well, so in, in 97, we were at the very beginning yes, stages of correct. DNA testing. Yeah, we, we take for granted how easily accessible it is right now. It's the automatic thing, right. especially in the wake of CSI. Yeah, I was going to say CSI, CSI, hadn't, and, CSI hadn't started yet. Of so, course, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's where we get. That's where everybody gets their training from. I'm kidding. That's not real life at all. But you know, we were just in the beginning stages because what was it? Ninety four. I want to say is when is when that kind of really started. Getting started. And then, I mean, 97, that's only a couple of years, One, you know, a couple of years away from that or removed from that. You have, you have Nahara who is grilled for eight to 10 hours. He's a young kid. He had a troubled youth. He was actually ad- adopted himself. He bounced around between high schools and stuff and wasn't necessarily a bad character, just had, had some troubles. Mm-hmm. And so he was, he was pretty, pretty young, pretty naive, 19, 20 years old when he gets brought in there. And so, it's, it's scary. And on, on stand, he said he wasn't forced or pressured. He followed through. He followed suit. But who knows? Who knows? Hmm. He, 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 he says that, but we know, and I think a lot about the David Milgard case where those yeah. young kids were yeah. interrogated until they were terrified and you're, you're threatened and they're saying, you can be held for 24 hours and if they don't charge you, they got to let you go. The prosecution insinuated that Nahara was threatened with charges and said, well, you're going to get charged as an accomplice if you don't tell us what you know, blah, blah, blah. And it seems really, I found it odd, the link between if I was, and this is just me totally speculating briefly here, but if I was trying to build a case against Joe Stock and I wanted to 
to plant these things together. Well, how convenient. There's a murdery rap song in the car. And then this guy, hey, listen, just say that he was singing a rap song because right. then we can tie that to this piece of evidence that we have. <sighs> to me, that's a weird convenience. Well, drives, if you're oh looking gosh, to build them. Well, de- details matter. If you well, wanted, details if, matter. If you wanted yeah, to create a detail, but... well, we've got a we've got a rap murder song and in your statement, we want you to say that he was singing a rap murder song. So it's so dumb. It's it's weird. It's dumb. And I simply, again, people are liars. Forensic evidence is not. And this feels like reasonable doubt to me. You know, it makes me it makes me feel bad because either we have somebody innocent behind bars or I'm saying that, you know, this this family's justice wasn't really right. justice. And right. I don't want to say either of those things. Yeah. But again, evidence yeah. it's 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 why there's evidence it's why there's reasonable doubt it's why you're innocent until proven guilty in the united states so uh, sources for today's story the chicago tribune the chicago daily herald the arlington heights daily herald state of illinois court documents the people of history.com govinfo.gov study.com forward slash academy forward slash lesson forward slash what is exculpatory evidence fija fija.org and caselaw.finelaw.com. And I want to give a special thanks also to Lee Mendelson for putting this case on our radar and providing access to some of the additional court documents and information. Thank you, everybody. This is Midwest Murder. Be sure to uh, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes when you got time. Shout out to the DVCC Minot, courageforchange.org. Make a donation. Let them know you love their support of Midwest Murder. And please encourage, if you have friends or family in dangerous situations, Uh, domestically please encourage them to find safety in a a better path at the dvcc come to the midwest stay for murder